and welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and we're back. Thank you for letting us take four weeks off in August for a little mini poggy break. As a lot of you know, I am working on my first book with the beautiful Murdoch books and my deadline is the end of September. So I really felt I just needed all the time I could garner uh, to get ahead on the project and I'm absolutely getting ahead on it now and I cannot wait to bring this out into the world for you guys next year. Now, what have we got happening for you? Gosh, it is a really amazing lineup for the rest of the year. I cannot wait for all of these incredible shows that I, some of which I have recorded already, some of which are about to unfold that I, I just can't believe I'm talking to these incredible minds. And the very first guest is the wonderful founder of Changing Habits, Cindy Amira. And the reason I wanted to bring Cindy Amira on the show is because she is so great at myth busting and and confusion removal when it comes to food. It's something I love doing for my community as well. And Cindy is just such a wonderful person to talk to from a clinical nutritionist perspective to just put that science behind things. And she makes things so simple and so so calming. You know, nothing is black and white in this world. There is no one food that is everybody's perfect savior. And there's no one food that is absolutely going to kill everyone when we're talking about real whole foods. It's really about taking the power back and seeing what feels great and right for us, as well as aligning ourselves with the things that we buy and our ethics and our values. And today's show is all about demystifying all the confusion that you guys shared with me over on the Facebook page, which if you're not a member of already, please pop through. I'll pop the notes in the Facebook, in the uh, show notes for you so you can join us there. And I simply asked, what are you still confused about with food? And today's podcast is basically formed of the foundation of what that thread produced and all the questions that you had. And I know so many people are going to feel calmer and more empowered at the end of this show. What we also talk about is Cindy's incredible research work with the documentary she did, What's With Wheat. A lot of people are confused as to why all of a sudden so many people are having issues with wheat from a digestive perspective, from allergy perspective, intolerance, whatever it might be, uh, bloating. There are so many people who experience some sort of negative effect these days and there are a lot of reasons for that. So we also talk about the, some of the key things that she found in doing the research for that documentary and I share the link to that documentary also in the show notes because I think everyone needs to watch it so we can feel more empowered around our food choices. It's not a wheat is bad statement. It's just a, a look into why it's all of a sudden become such an issue um, in dialogues and so hotly contested in scientific papers. Before I hook into that chat, I first want to give you two, not one, but two offers from the podcast today. We have two fantastic show partners. Earthing Oz is a beautiful Australian company that are passionate about electromagnetic radiation education and also passionate about teaching people about earthing. Some of you might know that as grounding, but suffice it to say, it's about getting skin contact with the ground with nature. So whether that's dirt, grass, uh, sand on the beach, clay uh, in the bush, whatever that is, just getting earthed. And 
I don't know about you, but I live in an apartment on the second floor in a high residential area, very urban lifestyle. And I, I love my lifestyle. There's, uh, I'm not questioning it, but it does mean we need a little bit of added support to feel that sense of feeling grounded. And Earthing Oz actually has a whole shop dedicated to helping us feel that way with products that they provide for us in around our homes. We have an unbelievable 20% off their entire range for the next two weeks. And your code, you guessed it, LOWTOXLIFE, all caps. And I've got their address, their website address and all the details for that offer, as well as two things I absolutely adore from their store uh, that I tell you a little bit more about in the show notes so I don't waste your time here. But please make the most of that. Get curious. You know, if you're like me and you experience a little sort of buzzy feeling around your body if you spend too much time around technology, this can be really helpful for you at work or at home. And I can't wait to see the results that you guys have. Getting feedback from you as to what you're enjoying either on the show or from the show sponsors when we help you discover something you didn't know existed is just so lovely. So please, if you do get something and you think, gosh, that really made a difference, please let me know. You know, it just, it makes my day. Trust me. Now, the other offer that I have for you is from the wonderful Guy uh, Lawrence and the 180 Nutrition team. Guy is actually joining me on the show in a few weeks to discuss some seriously way out there alternative forms of healing and uh, stillness finding that he has found along his way. But in his capacity as the founder of 180 Nutrition, they make possibly one of the best protein powders that I've ever sampled. They care very much about where their ingredients are sourced from, pesticide-free almonds, for example. If they used organic almonds, unfortunately, it would literally be double the price, the product. So spray-free is a, a wonderful transparency that they offer there. And they are offering you two sample packs that have two serves each of their amazing protein uh, powder. So this is something that you can use with your favorite type of milk, with a banana, some spinach and cinnamon, and that can really set you up for the day or, you know, save you from that 3 p.m. slump brownie you were thinking of choosing. It's a gorgeous high quality uh, protein powder and you have four serves absolutely free. All you need to cover is the $7.95 postage and handling and I have all of the details in the show notes. You literally just pop through and grab them. And what I love about the fact that they've provided two little minis is that you get to try two different flavors uh, so you can really decide moving forward which one you want to get the whole size of. So enjoy those two offers and without further ado, let's enjoy the chat that I've had with Cindy. Hello, Cindy. How are you? I'm good. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me on the show. I am so excited to have you here. It is, uh, it was one of those things I was thinking, okay, I've got to get Cindy on the show. What on earth? earth are we going to talk about? There is so much we could talk about. Um, but I would love to, uh, we're going to split today's show into a couple of things. We're going to do some myth busting because that's something you are so excellent at. And uh, and also I want to make space and time to talk about your amazing film, um, What's With Wheat. But before we do either of those things, just in case someone out there has been under a rock and has absolutely no idea who you are, um, I, I don't think there'll be too many of those people, but just in case there are, uh, I'd love to share, for you to share, um, sort of how you came to be doing what you do today. You know, what, what called you to the work you do um, with Changing Habits? <laughs> it's it's funny you should ask that, Alex, because I just kind of go, 
I am sure somebody was guiding me and orchestrating this whole thing because if you'd asked me as a 19-year-old, what do you want to do? I would have said I want to marry a farmer, have 12 children and live happily ever after. So the fact that um, I, I now am part of uh, education company, a food company, programs and protocols. I've done a documentary, What's With Wheat. Uh, I, I've written books. It was not on my goal list at 19. But I think um, what probably led me to it was uh, family situations. So my mum is the oldest of 11 children. Seven of them were boys. Six of them were had hemophilia. Uh-huh. Um yeah, not only did they have hemophilia, but when uh, blood transfusions were tainted with the HIV, they all got HIV to <gasps> wives. Yeah, uh, um, one of the children. So we lost nine members uh, to AIDS. Uh, in that family, we had lung cancer, breast cancer, liver cancer, type 1 diabetes, dysphagia, crest, autoimmunity, and the list goes on. And I think that one of my main drives is I didn't want to end up a statistic. My mum and my sister ended up a statistic. They both have passed away and I just went, I'm not going to end up a statistic. And so I became very keen to learn about prevention. But that all was preceded by me, my love of skiing and my love of the snow and my love of the mountains and my love of adventure and I went on an adventure at 19 and um, went to university at, in Boulder in Colorado and had the most amazing professors and met the most amazing people uh, that made me um, basically want to become a nutritionist and that was um, anthropology was it was a study of cultures and foods that made me want to become a nutritionist and so that's where it all started and then um from the people I met, the corners I turned, the opportunities I got um, led me to where I stand today. So I guess that's that's how I, I got to this point right now. And I'm just really not sure what's going to happen in the next 40 years. <laughs> wow. That's quite a journey and what a fire in the belly reason to, to um, you know, move into preventative. It's, it's, you know, funny. Well, it's not funny, ha-ha funny, but it, I find it interesting that so many of us who move into a space of, of helping people open their eyes up to how much empowerment can be done in the preventative space comes from some sort of personal duress, family duress um, issue that you've seen that you don't want perpetuated. You just see it time and again. And, you know, it's just one of the most um, kind of truest um, parts of our human nature in evolution is that we want to perpetuate a strong species. And, you know, it it's our basic work on an individual level, level let alone a professional scale, um, to want our next generation or ourselves to be stronger than the last. So, yeah, really, really um, appreciate you sharing that with us. You know, um, you hit the nail on the head, Alex. It's our want as individuals to be the best that we can and then to help our family. And then if we can help our community by example, then we're there. And, yeah, I hear it over and over again too. It's mothers who have sick children 
um, daughters who have sick parents, it seems to propel them, or sons, you know, it propels them to learn more and then they become uh, leaders in their community um, for change in, in many aspects, not just in the health of the human body, but the health of the planet, the health of the soil, the health of our food, um, the health of what, you know, cosmetics we use, the health of what cleaners we use. I love it. I, I love watching everybody doing this at the moment and it seems to be a tsunami of change that's happening as a result of it. Yeah, and isn't it sad that it's a tsunami of change as a result of a tsunami of disease? That's, yeah. you know, I wish that part didn't have to be the case but at least so many of us are on the case, right? Yes, mm. exactly. Yeah. Now, Let's, um, there are so many myths I want to bust. And in fact, I actually put it out to the community on Facebook over the weekend. You know, I'm going to be having a chat with, uh, Cindy O'Meara. She is just a fountain of knowledge and, um, you know, separating the wheat from the chaff, so to speak. <laughs> Probably could have picked a better pun given. <laughs> no, I given... love it. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, couldn't resist. Uh, and, um, and it was unbelievable to see unfold just how much confusion there still is around food, uh, and uh, so <laughs> so we've got we've got a bit of a list to get through here. But I'd love to start with saturated fats because everybody's still so confused. And that latest piece that came out saying, you know, vilifying coconut oil again, you know, it it almost felt like a last ditched attempt to to um, to try and thread together some something that wasn't even evidence-based in the first place. It was always only a, hypo- a hypothesis. But I would love to know your thoughts um, on how we can actually gain clarity around the saturated fat issue. Yeah. I think the first thing to do is is to say how can an old-fashioned food create a modern disease? I think that's number one. Whenever I look at science, I look at it with a philosophy in mind, and my philosophy is vitalism, which is that I look at everything in context, not looking down the barrel of a microscope and going, oh, my goodness, you know, saturated fat causes heart disease. That's looking down the barrel of a microscope. I And that salt causes hypertension. It's not one thing that causes a disease. It's a lifestyle that causes disease. It's many things that causes, you know, these problems. So that's the first thing I do is I I look at the holistic view of it. So where do I find saturated fats? What foods do I find saturated fat in? Are they foods that we have eaten throughout our evolution? And are they foods... um, that are part of, you know, our regime of how we survive and adapted to certain environments around the world. So that would be number one. Number two, I look at it in the context of cultures. What cultures that still exist today, what foods do they consume and, you know, are they saturated fat? So let's look at a culture that has been studied since 1920. They haven't changed much since those times. They're still eating the same foods. They're still living in their same culture. And they're the Katavas. And the Katavas live off an island in Papua New Guinea. And um, they basically eat coconut oil or coconut till their heart's content. They eat um, all the beautiful tropical fruits. They eat a lot of tubers. So their, their diet is high in not only saturated fats but carbohydrates. And they eat fish. So I just 
when I saw that come out, I felt like saying, have you told the Katavas of your research? <laughs> yeah. you know, have you let them know that saturated fat is going to cause heart disease and that coconut oil is the worst oil of all and they shouldn't be eating it? Have you, have you let them know? You know so <laughs> that's my, like, I just, I laugh. Mm. And, you know, when you saw Gary Torbs, Dr. Gary Torbs, you saw um, David Perlmutter, you saw um, Dr. Mahuta, um, the cardiologist out of England, when you read what they had to say about it, and the investigation that they did, one just looked at the science, which was Gary Torbs. Another one looked at the financial backing mm. behind the guy that did the science behind yeah. saturated fat and coconut oil. And it was, I think, a large, last-ditch stand by the AHA, the, you know, the American Heart Foundation um, or Association. I think it was their last-ditch stand to appease the finances. Yeah. Um, that's what I saw it as. And I, I feel sorry for the public. Yeah, because we're the ones who get confused to the point of making decisions that literally go against our biology. Definitely. And what they were saying was that we should eat canola oil, soya oil, uh, polyunsaturated oils. So for me, I look at not only... Uh, that culture of the Katavas, and they're not—they're just one that I'm talking about. There are many that eat saturated fat, but I also like to look at the ebb and flow of of how we've always eaten. And while saturated fats were available more likely in the summer months, in the winter months, um, polyunsaturated fats were available, such as nuts and seeds. But in every fat that in every food that we find that is still in context we find that there is a mix of poly, mono, and saturated. So, and, and, you know, even butter, butter is not all saturated fat. Butter is a percentage of saturated fat, but we've got omega-3s in there. We've got um, butyric acid in there that helps feed uh, the enterocytes in our gastrointestinal walls. So I just, I, I have to laugh. I, you have to look at the whole food. You cannot just go... Coconut oil's got saturated fat, therefore it's bad for us. But don't forget to tell the Katavas, you know, that, you know, that's something that they shouldn't be eating. And here, we'll give you some margarine. That'll be better for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> let's not. And I think what's really hilarious, and it speaks to that whole last-ditched effort, is um, is the fact that you see now some really big uh, – margarine or seed oil spreads in the supermarkets now advertising that they come with 20% butter or 30% butter <laughs> and and that's just like well how is how is that for the sneakiest kind of backdoor admission of all time that actually <laughs> our sales are plummeting because you guys now realize that putting a little bit of butter on your bread in the morning or you know um, on your steamed veggies is actually not harmful and uh, and um, let's let's kind of just start to change our products so that our sales come back by putting the butter back in it's bizarre but have you also noticed they don't call it margarine anymore no I defy yeah. you to find margarine yeah. it's spread yeah yeah it's, <laughs> it's impossible spread. Mm. Mm. exactly oh my gosh yeah, yeah but like I, I just think for the educated people out there and I would say that the people are listening to you are either educated or wanting to become educated or open to suggestion absolutely uh, yeah that they will start to realize that 
you know, we've been in a dark age, a dark age of oh, where food is killing our health, destroying our health. And it's, you know, it's time to um, open our eyes and realize what food manufacturers are all about. They're not about our health. They're about making money. That's right. And the more you can productize, the more money you can make. Um, you know, you, there's a reason farming on a small scale is sustainable for a family and that's about it because it's no money to be – you can't put it in a packet and say, you know, 10% fat or, you know, all the things that are done to make things profitable. Um, so, yeah, it's really interesting times. And like one of the other ones that kind of has come out maybe after margarine um, – uh, is the rice bran oil. And I, I, you've got a piece on your site that is fantastic that speaks to whether this is, in fact, the healthy choice it's being um, touted as. Um, but could you just kind of share briefly why you, how you came to your conclusions on rice bran oil? Yeah. I, th- I think the first thing to do is to look at these seed oils as, as a group uh, so canola oil, if it's uh, genetically modified, it'll have Roundup sprayed on it. If it's not genetically modified, it'll have Roundup sprayed on it as a desiccant. Um, we can look at soya as the same way. And this rice bran oil or grapeseed oil, when you look at rice, it doesn't seem like an oily grain. Therefore, um, the only place they're going to get that oil out of that grain is the germ. So the words first, you know, I looked at it and I went, rice bran oil, how are they getting oil out of bran? That was my first question to myself when I saw it. And um, it's not out of the bran. They do bring it out of the germ. But because it's not an oily grain, uh, it is actually uh, has to be the solvents need to be used in order to press it, to bring it out, bring the fat out of the, the germ. And you know, there is no such thing as a cold-pressed rice bran oil. I, I ask anybody to go out and find it for me, but I've never seen it because they have to use solvents to extract that fat out. And there's lots of things that have to happen to it after it's been extracted out. So it's it's a, a non – it will never go off. It's totally refined. Uh, it Yes, it could be polyunsaturated, but um, if they're doing things to it, then it's not going to have the nutrients that – you need in order to use that fat and the other thing we have to be very aware with with rice and I've noticed there's now rice syrup uh, so they're making sugar out of it as well as the fat is that when uh, in 1937 1938 on many of the um, midwestern areas growing areas of America I don't know if it happened in Australia I only know that this happened in America because my mum lived there at the time so in 19 around 37 38 39 there was a huge locust plague and in order to get rid of this locust plague they sprayed lead and arsenic on all the wheat fields and the corn fields to get rid of it now that lead and arsenic became very toxic in the soil and um, when some of those beautiful fields were being taken up with houses, a lot of the residents started to get sick and it was arsenic and lead poisoning. Now, what they're doing now is that they're growing rice on some of those fields. And so rice has an affinity to take up arsenic. So a lot of our rice is high in arsenic. So, you know, we're, we're 
we've just, we're, you know, we, we thought we were doing something right in 38, 39, 37, and yet we're now paying the consequences. We did the same with DDT. We sprayed DDT in the US from 1945 to 1955 until we realized it was a neurotoxin. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but it's still playing havoc among uh, within our food, but as well as there's been this epigenetic pass on of this DDT. Yeah, it's yeah. devastating that stuff. And, you know, you can see the old late 40s, early 50s ads with like a little girl skipping along. <laughs> DDT is good for me. And I think there was even a jingle. It's just crazy. Absolutely yeah. nuts. Um, and, uh, and yeah, that's definitely something to um, wonder about if you do consume a lot of rice products. I know in Australia our arsenic levels are definitely lower than China mm. and the US, but if you're worried at all, just get yourself a little hair sample with a fresh piece of hair at the back and nape of your neck and, um, and you should be able to quite easily see um, whether that's something you need to worry about and, and keep check on. Mm. But rice bran oil is a no because it is part of that whole um, little seed oil class. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just Bye-bye. stay away from it. <laughs> Bye-bye is right. <laughs> so um, anything with sugar is bad. This seems to be something that is uh, hugely confusing for people and we've so many people have come to think that if I eat a piece of fruit, I'm hurting myself or have a piece of cake at my cousin's party and I'm being a bad person. Can you help us, Cindy? Yeah. <laughs> it's like anything. I don't know what it is, but we seem to want to go to an extreme. So first of all, it was no salt and then it's no fat and now we're going no sugar. Uh, but sugar is a very important part of our evolution. And I'm not talking about that white refined sugar. I'm not talking about glucose syrup, rice <laughs> rice syrup or any of those. I'm talking about glu- like glucose and fructose that is naturally uh, in, in fruits, in the sugar cane, in the sugar beet, as long as it's not genetically modified. But it's it's in um, our grains. It's it's in everything. These these beautiful complex carbohydrates um, that can be refined down to sugar, and sugar was a very important um, part in our evolutionary process. In that, it enabled us to put fat on in the lean in the in the months of summer, so that when the lean months of winter came, we could. Um, use that fat in order to survive if there was no food around. And if there was no sugar around, like in the way of beautiful fruits and carbohydrates, then we wouldn't put on any weight. We would become intermittently infertile. We wouldn't produce children at that stage because otherwise it would kill the child as well as ourselves because we didn't have that food. So to go on the ketogenic diet and stay on the ketogenic diet, which is mainly fats with some protein in it and very little carbohydrates, to me is something against the laws of nature. Maybe we would have lasted in that for maybe a year if it was a bad season, maybe two years, but then we would have had carbohydrates at some point. And usually it was ketogenic for maybe three or four months of the year, and then we would have some sort of carbohydrate and then we would go back into ketogenic. So it was a seasonal approach to the foods we eat. And to say that anything with sugar is bad, like I love making cakes and 
Um, you know, dates are a wonderful way of adding sweetener. And there's the old-fashioned rapadura sugar that we've been making for thousands of years. It's gorgeous, you know, we, that stuff. Oh, it's, mm. it's stunning. Mm. So um, to say don't eat fruit or any sugar, anything with sugar in it, uh, unless you are, are very sick and there's a reason why we're doing this, uh, I disagree. I think that fruits are a wonderful form of sugar, a wonderful form of um, vitamins and minerals and phytonutrients and energy. And and but eat them seasonally. You know, we've got at the moment, like we're in Australia at the moment, we've got apples and citrus mm. and pears, and it's be- they're beautiful. They're absolutely beautiful. Don't eat mangoes <laughs> when it's winter in Australia. Yeah, you know? exactly. And there's something really interesting um, that happens where because in the summertime we've got more vitamin D, that vitamin D helps us synthesise fructose and stops us from having insulin reactions and spikes, etc. And you look at what's available in summer and it is all of those much sweeter um, fruits. So it totally scientifically speaks to what you're saying, which is we eat cyclically we eat with what's around us and available to us um and and that tends to stand us in pretty good stead and i think at this point it might be good to just address fructose malabsorption yes please uh, which is becoming uh you know big time everyone's talking about the fodmaps and this was discovered at monash university um in melbourne and I, I wondered why at the time, why is this a problem with fructose malabsorption? And I noticed that on one of your podcasts that you did talk to somebody about glyphosate and I haven't had a chance to um, listen to that and oh, I will. You will love yeah. Michael. You will love him. Yeah. Well, I look forward to it. Mm. But we know that uh, glyphosate uh, is a, a herbicide, but it's also a uh, chelating agent. So it chelates your minerals. It um, is also a biocide and it's it's also an antiparasitic. So it's basically if it's in a food or it's sprayed around you, it starts to kill off the bacteria that help us digest our fructose, which then makes our neurotransmitters um, via the, the production of aromatic amino acids. And if we don't have those bacteria, we have a hard time digesting the fructose. So then the fructose passes down to the bacteria and they make hydrogen and methane and all sorts of products and we start to blow, our, our tummies blow up and we get IBS. So to blame fructose as the problem, a food, once again, here we go back to a food that we have consumed throughout evolution our whole life just seems ludicrous. It absolutely does. I so agree with you and you know, I think uh, rather than going, oh, well, this is my lot in life. I can't have my fruit. I can't have anything fructose in it. Oh, and now I've got this other problem, and so I've got to cut out dairy. And now I've got this other problem, so I can't have any salicylates. And now I'm actually reacting to histamines. And um, you know, I actually had a huge histamine issue that is finally starting to resolve itself um, after surgery last year because um, in anaesthetic you have a number of components that are histamine releases. And, of course, you have a huge dose of antibiotics that you have to take afterwards, which, you know, again can be histamine releasing. And then there are a lot of broad-spectrum probiotics that you can take that also have histamine releases. So if all of this stuff is going on at once, you can end up with a great whopping issue with histamines. But I'm very thankful that I am of the, okay, this is the upstream issue. 
if we go right down to how this might have been caused, what has set this off because, you know, me and a really good piece of cheese and a glass of wine on a Sunday night with good <laughs> friends is not going to stop anytime soon. How can we actually get to root cause? And I just urge anybody out there, it is not normal to be thinking you can only eat four foods. Mm. You know, that might be your SOS measure for right now, but don't be thinking that's your sentence in life. It's what has caused this? What are the deeper issues? And I totally agree with you, Cindy. This glyphosate issue is big because it's affecting all of us. Mm. It is. Yeah. It really is. And we have to choose as individuals to say no to it and to um, lobby our councils to stop using it and the farms around us to stop using it because, you know, it's hard enough just trying to do the Sunshine Coast, let alone the rest of the world. So it's up to each and every individual to start speaking out about this. Absolutely. Um, okay, great. So um, sugar we're not so terrified by anymore. So let's move on to cholesterol. That's another good one that everyone's terrified about. Is eating f- – f- can we eat foods that, can, that contain cholesterol? Eggs, for example. Is there a limit? Oh, I don't think there's a limit at all. <sighs> um, but I like variety, so – you know, eating a dozen eggs a day may not be the variety that you need. Yeah. Um, so have your variety with your proteins. But I, you know, the whole cholesterol myth, I think it's, I, I remember writing about it in the 80s uh, and being told off about it in the 90s. And now we see it everywhere uh, about the whole cholesterol myth. And it is a myth. It's Cholesterol is such an important component of the body and if you don't eat it, your body will make it. It it has to because it makes our vitamin D, it makes our hormones, it's part of our brain. It's it, There's so many reasons we need cholesterol and that's why the liver makes it. So to think that if you don't eat it, then you're not going to have high cholesterol, it's, it's not a tit for tat type of scenario and the body never is. It's like sugar, it's like fat, it's like salt. They're it's not one thing, it's many things. And I was listening to a nutritionist recently, um, Johnny Bowden, and his whole thing on cholesterol, because I think he was one of the authors of the cholesterol myth. That oh, came he was. Out. And I've had yeah. Dr. Sinatra on the show a couple of times. Yeah, love them. Yeah, they're brilliant. And they, and they talk about um, yeah, this whole thing about the cholesterol myth. But let's, let's just put it in practical terms. We've been robbing nests for a long, long time, eating eggs, um, emu eggs the Aboriginal people ate, you know, unless it was their totem. So, you know, this has been happening for a long, long time. Here is another old food that we're giving it um, a, a switch around and saying it's causing a modern disease. So we just have to look at it this way and um, cholesterol is important, but if you don't eat it, then your body's going to make it anyway. So, or eat good quality cholesterol, you know, cholesterol, which is our eggs. Don't eat it by itself. That's, you know, this is another thing that really gets me. We find a food that's great for us and then we go, oh, well, let's isolate and eat it by itself. It has to be eaten in context. It, everything has to be eaten in context. Even, um, I don't like hydrolyzed proteins. I don't like isolated proteins. I don't like, um, you know, concentrates because I think that we're taking out the variability of our body to use it in in its proper way. I understand there are people out there that have to, or 
you know, mainly children usually, but who can't tolerate their mother's milk, that they may need um, a protein that's been pre-digested for them. I, I understand that that's to keep them alive. But for the common person, let's just eat food the way it was meant to be eaten, not in isolated, hydrolyzated or concentrated forms. Yeah, I agree. So, yeah, let's not be buying the the packets of egg white at the supermarket and, and putting powdered egg whites in our smoothies thinking we're doing a good thing for ourselves. Yeah. Now, um, okay, where do we go next? So salt, let's go there. Salt is bad for me is such a common statement. I know members of my family who have high blood pressure who say, you can't put that much salt on our food you know, when I'm cooking for the family. Can you help us dispel this myth? Yeah, once again, we've looked at salt and said salt causes hypertension, so then it becomes something that we should reduce. So we get low salt or no salt or don't add salt. And it's a perpetuated myth once again. But I have to, there's a there's a difference between refined salt and salt, just like white sugar and, you know, sugars that are within context within a food. So what they do when they refine salt is they'll use cost, um, caustic soda and sulfuric acid and chlorine in order to clean all the minerals out of the salt. Those minerals they may reuse in vitamin and mineral capsules. So that's where those minerals go. They then heat it to ex- an extreme heat and it, basically you're left with a sodium chloride and then they add uh, anti-caking agents, they may add bleaches to it. And, you know, that's a refined salt, a a salt that has been eaten for thousands of years. And I've been to Peru, I've been to the Himalayas, I've seen where the salt roads lead. uh, And it was a commodity. This is the way the name salary came from. It came from you were paid in salt. Mm, I didn't know that. How cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's where salary came from. It was a payment of salt. And, um, And so... We've been consuming unrefined salt for thousands of years. We need salt. It's so important. And if we don't have, if our water and salt balances out, histamine will um, increase for you and your eyes may water. You might get a scratchy um, throat. So all these symptoms that people say, oh, I need to take an antihistamine, maybe all you need is a bit of salt and water. Mm. Just add some unrefined salt with some water and, you you know, that histamine reaction might disappear. So to me, eating unref- having unrefined salt is far better than refined salt and it's very important, um, that balance. A 2%, if we're just 2% off that balance of salt, you know, it can turn into um, – uh, us having a bit of muscle weakness or a little bit disorientation. 5% increases that. 15% imbalance, you're dead. Mm. So it's wow. really important that we have that balance of salt and water. And, you know, when there's people losing a lot of water, they're losing a lot of salt. So they're going to have to put salt back in. And now, our lands do not have that salt on them anymore. So once upon a time, our lands were flooded by maybe oceans or flooded by some sort of way, but now we have dams and all sorts of things like that and our lands aren't getting that salt anymore. So therefore, I believe we need to add salt to our our foods, but unrefined salt. Unrefined salt. Great. Um and, you know, again, it comes back to like the idea of stripping the minerals out of salt and then chucking them in a capsule for an, like, 
<laughs> just, you know, it comes back to that idea of food in context and food, um, which is something Professor Michael Antonio shared on the glyphosate episode, we are eating information and our body understands a certain kind of information and that's how it's all been put together in nature. And, of course, there are times that you're going to need therapeutic uh, supplements um, but, you know, in terms of the food that we eat at mealtime, it just makes so much sense to think of that food is information. What kind of information does my body understand? And it understands whole foods. Yeah, and yeah. it is. It's, it's actually telling your DNA. Yeah. It's giving it signals to turn on, turn off, do what it needs to do. And, and people just used to think that food was about energy, you know, calories or building blocks. Uh, and now we realise that it is information and it's telling our DNA exactly what to do and our DNA is expecting it. When it doesn't get it, that's when it starts to get sick. So, oh, I'm going to have to listen to that one. I'm, I, yeah, he sounds <laughs> right up my alley. <laughs> he, he's a legend. I went and visited yeah. him at his um, his lab in Guy's Hospital at um, King's College London and uh, and saw the glyphosate study that he was doing in full swing and <laughs> – this is what I do on holidays, Cindy. This is, my, this is my kind of like, you know, woo, everyone else is going clubbing and off to bars and I'm like, oh, my gosh, really? Tell me more. So, um, But it was just such an inspiration to meet someone who's literally at the coalface of, of providing us with um, really stable, unbiased information in a very cloudy, very noisy, very confusing space. And, yeah, he's, he's a great man. So I know you'll love that show. Wonderful. Um, now, um Meat, oh gosh, here we go. Is red meat harmful? This seems to be one of the biggest tabloid stories that keeps coming out every now and then and I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Here we are again, yeah. an old-fashioned food causing a new cancer, bowel cancer issue. Yeah. You know, it, it, to me that's it. Now, once again, we have two types of meat. We have the meat that is domesticated, that might be grass-fed in the beginning, then is grain-fed, they put antibiotics in it, they might put hormones um, to help the growth factor. I agree, stay away from that stuff. But our beautiful meats that more and more people are starting to do, I have them on my farm, they're grass-fed to the end, there's no chemicals sprayed on the grass, there's no glyphosate on the grass, I don't care about clover and dandelion, I love clover and dandelion, yeah. so... You know, my, my cows are on the cleanest of grasses and they live a very outdoor life. They don't live an indoor life. So there are two types of meat. There's also processed meat. So there was a real thing on processed meats. There's the old-fashioned way of processing, which we've been doing for thousands of years, and that's salting and drying. And the, and the himbas in Namibia still do it. Mm. They still salt, dry, and ferment their meats. And they don't have bowel cancer. Yeah. <laughs> but then there are the the salted, the sorry, the preserved meats that you read the ingredients and it looks like a chemical laboratory with nitrites and nitrates and colours and all sorts of other additives in it. So when I'm talking about red meat, I'm talking about the information that our body has been given for thousands of years with those types of meat, not the meats that are filled with additives, hormones, antibiotics, and God knows what else. And red meat has been a part of many civilizations, not every civilization, because look at the Katavas, they only ate fish, they didn't have red meat available to them. They might have had 
maybe mice or rats. I don't know. I, I might be wrong there, but mm. um, you know, their their main protein was fish. But you look at the himbers, uh, and their main source of meat was either cow or goat. Uh, and you look around at all the cultures that have existed from the Hadsas of Tanzania who still live their traditional ways and they eat gorilla. Or not gorilla, is it gorilla? Yeah, they'll, they'll eat large game as well as small game red meat without any issues of bowel cancer. So here we are. I, I, we could have said the same thing for everything. We're looking at an yeah. old-fashioned food. And there's this new documentary out called What the Health? And... It's all about red meat is bad, um, meat is bad, eating animal products is bad. And um, there, I just think for people to just be aware of who made the film and the agenda um, of the people who are being interviewed, they're all vegans. And, and I have nothing against vegans whatsoever. They can do what they want, but they must for one, be people who are consuming foods the right way. So um, my daughter has a friend who's become a vegan and she went to McDonald's and bought a burger, threw the meat and the cheese out and ate the burger. Now that's just ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, two little pieces of white bread with sugar in it and I think it's about 19 ingredients in the average burger bun of a fast food restaurant. So, yeah, yeah, I totally and that, agree. Mm. And this is what's scary is that, that these people are, are pushing the agenda or, or to be vegan but not teaching these kids, these young girls especially, who want to save the animal uh, and are compelled to save the animal but don't know how to to do and to be a vegan the proper way. It takes time. It's hard work. Eating a piece of meat and vegetables is easy and especially sourced well. But making sure that you're getting all that you need, there is no culture in the world that was a vegan. The Hindu culture were vegetarians. They relied heavily on the cow's products. But there was never a culture in the world that was was vegan that we know of. And so once again, I'm looking at an historical perspective of what kind of diet this is. So, um, I, yeah, I'm all for for meat, but I want, you know, I want it the old-fashioned way. I want my animals cared for and loved and lived good lives and not given antibiotics and hormones and um, grain-fed. I want them grass-fed. But having said that, Alex, I also, if I have no grass, I would rather my animals be fed a supplement of grain than die. So yeah. I have to you've got to you've got to have, you know, you can't be so strict that you say, Well, I want grass fed and I don't want anything else. Well, what if there's no grass out there? You're not gonna you know, you you can't change that. Mm. So you can't you think. Well, and it also think. brings up quite a philosophical debate. I remember a couple of years ago, um a, a woman in Canada was saying, Well, we can't have grass-fed cows up here because you know, it's Canada for goodness sake. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, nine months of the year we don't get any grass, let alone cows being able to roam around on it and eat it. And then it makes me think, gosh, this is like, you know, these are the things that make my brain hurt in the sense that, well, should we even have cows in that part of the world if they don't get to eat the natural way that they would? And I understand, you know, um, to your point, the idea of, you know, you've, you have a crappy season, there's no grass, there was a drought, of course, um, nothing's black and white. But in, in 
cult in in like landscapes that clearly don't allow for the natural way of eating should that animal be raised there for food in the first place. It's like a pretty, I know, that's like, let's not tangent there because that's like a, a three-hour discussion, but <laughs> I just think, you know. Bison and buffalo. Yeah, know, exactly. Don't... That's right. That is right. And yak. Mm. You know, the yaks live at 14,000 feet in 10 months of snow. So. Mm. I know, <laughs> and elk as well. There's exactly. an amazing sustainable burger chain, Bear Burger, in um, LA. I don't know if you've you've caught no. that, but it is Unbelievable. They were voted in the top 10 most sustainable restaurants in the US um, last year and the year before. And we were in LA in March and went, that just sort of became a bit of our go to um, because it was, you know, just this amazing attention to locality and to the point where on the restaurant menu in um, a different part of the state, you would have a different sourcing menu because they were closer to other farmers down there. So, you know, they've found a way to be profitable, but still actually respect um, local growing areas, local animals and, and all sorts. And, um, yeah, on the meat menu you have an option for elk and bison and, and all sorts. So really, really cool. Oh, I'm looking them up now. I know. <laughs> I'll be there in three weeks. Woo-hoo. I am going to. <laughs> oh, you have to take a picture and tag me and say, I made it. I went. Yeah, it's it's really cool. Mm, okay. You'll love it. Is it Santa Monica? Is that the yeah, one? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I know. Yeah. All right, be gone. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, yeah, very interesting that you mentioned that documentary, What's With Health, and I think it comes back to just as when we see, um, it just as when an omnivore sees a, a publication saying, um, I don't know, uh, vegetables are the only, you know, vegetarian or vegan is the only way to be healthy. We should be just as skeptical, as skeptical of that as we should be of ketogenic diets are the only way to be healthy. I mean, everyone should just be a little bit more of a critical thinker in general, right? And, um, and you know, who's writing this? Where are they coming from? Is it because uh, it's an activist angle where they want an outcome and therefore they're kind of clouding the argument a little bit and being one-sided, whether it's, you know, a ketogenic person or a vegan person? And I really think the happiness comes from eating in season, listening to your body, and if you're choosing um, diets of a, a, a cut-things-out nature, to really work with a nutritionist and make sure you're on the right track because, as you said, just ditching the meat and cheese at, a, at Macca's um, so that you can go vegan is definitely not um, the way to do it. And I know it's not the way any vegans in our community would, would um, operate. I know that for sure, speaking to them. But um, a really valid point that you make, like, Who's making the argument? Where is the research? Where are the studies? Can I read something that says the total opposite so that I can actually then start to form my argument somewhere in the middle, um, taking it all in? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I I have a really good friend, James and Laurentine from Food Matters, and James says, I'm a qualitarian, Cindy, and I love that. It doesn't matter what your dietary choice is. I'm a qualitarian. I will eat the best of quality of food that I can. And I think if everybody went to I'm a qualitarian, then there's no vegans, there's no paleos, there's no macrobiotics, vegetarians, ketogenics, low-fat, high-carb, or high-carb, low-fat, or whatever there is out there. You know, it's, it's, it becomes I'm a qualitarian. I just want quality food. Yeah, I love it. Quality food for all. That's so beautiful. And it's uniting, right? That's what everybody wants. Mm-hmm. 
very very much uniting. So something that's not uniting is the dairy argument. <laughs> so people are always saying, oh, it's totally inflammatory, you can't eat that. Is it again a case of processing and, and quality when it comes to dairy or are there people who legitimately just do better off it and some who maybe genetically do better on it? All right, let's let's go back to where I started with uh, an old-fashioned food causing issues. So if we look at the Himbas who live in uh, Namibia and we look at the Kigiris who live in the Pamir um, of Afghanistan, we see that these people rely heavily on dairy. Their whole life is dairy. They milk butter, they make cheeses, they make yogurts. Um, they have very little else to eat. So the Kyrgyz have rhubarb. Um, they live at 14,000 feet in the snow. They have rhubarb. They have spring onion. And they will have to travel five days one way if they want to get any other food and then five days back. So their main diet is dairy. They don't have a dairy allergy. They don't, and they're not inflamed. They don't have heart disease. They have nothing. And we, we'll do the same with the, the Nibibia, in Nabibia, the, the Himbas. That's their main diet. They, you know, on good seasons, they'll get more food, but that is, is what they eat. So it has to be in what we've done to milk. And one of the biggest arguments of all is the A1, A2 argument. Now, I didn't take much credence with that, but recently I was asked to be an expert witness in a case in the UK uh, for somebody who had said in an article that they said, why don't you try goat's milk as opposed to cow's milk? And some pediatrician took offence to that and said that's not part of the NHS's guidelines for milk allergies. <laughs> and and so I had to do a lot of research and I've decided that my next documentary is What's With Dairy. <laughs> I love it. It needs to happen. Uh, it does. And what we realise is that for probably our historical perspective, we have drunk A2 milk, not A1 milk. So there are – look, this is it's fascinating when, when, you, when you read up on this and look at the evidence um, around it. So – uh, it's just a different um, type of protein. Um, that's what it is. So there's proteins in the whey, there's protein in the in the cow's milk, in the milk, and um, there are about, I think, eight proteins that may cause a problem with an allergy or something like that. So I think we need to look at that aspect of it. All of our goats, camel, sheep, Jersey cows, things like that are all A2, and we bred this A1 um, mutation. Mm. So that's one thing. And the other thing that's really interesting is information out of Venice. The, I think it's the University of Venice. There's these, there are these women that realize that the protein that is the most allergic where people will have an anaphylactic reaction to it, I cannot remember the name of it, I wish I had it in front of me, if it has iron associated with it, it is non-allergenic completely. Iron, what, did you say? Iron, yeah, wow. iron, like the mineral iron associated with it, it is non-allergenic. And so they're trying to figure out is why do some milks have iron with this uh, protein and others don't? And it is all about farming. 
Wow. It is all about the farming method. So um, I'm, I, I just know I've already got people I want to interview because it opens up this amazing can of worms that are we allergic to the modern day milk because of, of many of the changes that have been made. So, you know, a lot of people are allergic to it, but they're probably allergic to the processing and the problems that we have with milk as opposed to, um, you know, the traditional milks, the way we used to do milks, the fermenting processes. So in a nutshell, there you go. Yeah, so true. And a book that really opened my eyes to the whole milk story, and it's one that I'll pop in the show notes. And Cindy, I might ask you to just send me the name of that protein just um, when you do find it so that I can pop that in the show notes too, um, is Ron Sh- uh, Dr. I know Ron Schmidt, Rob Schmidt. Gosh, I can't remember whether he's a rod or rom, but um, The Untold Story of Milk, anyway, is the name of the book and it is... The Kiwi? Um, no, uh, no, he's an American guy. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, amazing. Um, such a good book. I'm going to put it in the show notes so that everyone can um, check it out if you want to learn more about just the history. You know, you were just giving a little bit of a traditional foods scope from those two tribes and, you know, you go into looking at all of that and and the evolution of what we actually consume, you know, these weird low-fat products, isolated proteins from milks and, and all the crazy stuff that's happened. Um, you know, it's not the food itself often, it's what we've done to it. I totally agree. Um, and I guess that's a pretty good segue for us to talk about wheat <laughs> because, um, uh, well, gosh, where do we start with wheat, right? It's definitely a case of what's been done to it in terms of over the last century. Uh, can you share with us why, I mean, you know, obviously I'm going to suggest that everybody downloads the film who hasn't seen it before um, because it's an absolute ripper of an hour and I think 18 minutes long um, on wheat. But um, if you had to sum up some of the things that you knew about wheat that made you want to make this film in the first place to get the word out, what do you, what do you reckon the top kind of things are? Oh, look, if I was to say the top thing, I think it's our agriculture. Uh, and I think that would be number one. Here we go again. Uh, wheat is uh, an old-fashioned food and I don't, I, I don't care what you hear out there as far as the paleo community goes that, you know, all grain is bad. Grain has been consumed uh, throughout the ages. We, we know that the wheat grain is about 23,000 years old. That was where we've dated back the first wheat grain, which was a monoculture, a non-monoculture, a monoploid. Um, and it being a monoploid, knowing that it was the first wheat grain or grass, and um, that was called einkorn, E-I-N-K-O-R-N. Uh, and then about 17,000 years, there were two grasses that crossed and that became a diploid and that was emma wheat. And the wheat that we eat today is a polyploid. There's been lots of hybridization and, and natural hybridization or manipulated hybridization. And, and as we do that, genomes change, how much gluten changes, depending on who's manipulating it, nature or man. So, you know, when we, we look at um, grain, and let's, let's just look at Australia. If you read the book Dark Emu by Bruce Pascoe, uh, who is the most amazing researcher, have you, have you read it, Alex? No, I haven't. Oh, look, it's, I was furious after I read it. because That's next on the list. 
Yep. I was lied to in Australian history. I was told that the Australian Aboriginal people were hunter-gatherers, but they were not. They're the oldest agriculturalists in the world. They've been making bread longer than any bread maker in Europe. They're, um, and, the, and he has evidence, not only archaeological evidence, but he has evidence from our, our explorers who wrote about them. For instance, Sturt um, was in the Sturt Stony Desert and he was starving. They'd lost horses. They were walking. They came over a rise. And Sturt writes in his journal that there were fields of grain and stone houses and a population of Aboriginal people that greeted them, a huge population, um, but they were greeted and given, wait for it, roast duck mm. and cake. <laughs> You're kidding me. No, it's it's just the most eye-opening book. Um, it's one of those books that just changed everything for me, especially when it comes to grain because I've always believed that grain was a part of our diet. But, you know, with everything that was happening, including my own issues with wheat, I started to go, I started to doubt myself. But then I realized it was, uh, they were not not so much gluten. They did have a wild oat. They had a wild rice. Um, they, they also had kangaroo grass. There was quite a few grains that they used, nadu. But it was in the preparation the breaking down of the phytates, the breaking down of the anti-nutrients that allowed them to eat these grains successfully. It was in the rotation of how they consumed these foods. They didn't eat it for breakfast, morning tea, lunch, afternoon tea, dinner, supper, in their supplements, in their medications, putting it on their skin, in their ceiling roofs. You know, it wasn't like that. It was uh, a seasonal food. It was prepared with consideration through cultures and traditions. And, and I, I, you know, if I was going to name all the things that I realized about wheat, one of them was we eat way too much of it. We fortified it with synthetic vitamins and minerals that we can pull out with a magnet or with mind. Um, it's in everything. It's been hybridized. Glyphosate sp- sprayed on it, not only before planting, but as a desiccant three weeks uh, after, oh, before harvest, um, not all wheat, but when they want to dry it um, evenly, they will do that. It increases the yield. So there's all of these things that have um, escalated and created um, a perfect storm where people can't seem to tolerate these foods anymore. And and then glyphosate, which is sprayed on the grain and and everywhere else, as if everybody's been listening to your, you know, podcast, it destroys our ability to d- even digest the grain if we haven't prepared it properly. So there's, there's just this. We've created this perfect storm, and now everybody thinks that it's not good for us. But it's, it's not so much the beautiful ancient wheat grain that is the problem. It's what we've done to it, and what we've done to our body, and um, this, you know, perfect storm that's been created that we now are seeing an increase in autoimmune disease, celiac disease, non-celiac gluten sensitivity, wheat allergies, and then there's a knock-on effect to so many other foods that are cross-reacting um, with these grains. And it could be the fructans in wheat, it could be the gluten in wheat, it could be another protein in wheat. You know, there's, there's 
it's it's really quite it's it's quite sad that a food that in the 60s and 70s when I was growing up was of no cause or no concern to anybody is now you know creating an industry of gluten-free products which are still just as bad yeah most often they are absolutely and again it comes back to that cheeseburger example of ditching the meat and the cheese just so you can say it's something and safe in inverted commas it's the same with gluten-free just because you're not going to get a reaction to it doesn't mean it's nourishing your body there's two very different things yeah very different and a lot of people think that you know, it, you have to have celiac disease or a wheat allergy to stop eating it. You know, like a doctor will say, well, you haven't got celiac disease and you don't have wheat allergy, you can eat wheat. Mm. Well, that's not right. No. Because <laughs> I can tell you firsthand that's not right. Uh, from one day to the next, after tonsillitis four or five times a year, for many, many years of my life, I, for the first time ever I saw a naturopath was you know, uh, listeners know this story, but maybe you don't, Cindy. It was like literally the third round of the strongest, most hectic antibiotics you could throw at this thing that f- were not working because it was just it was resistant to everything by then after so many years. And um, and she decided she put me on an elimination diet just for gluten and just said, "Look, I just want to check this one with you. So let's just not have any of that for two weeks. Let's have a nice." Um, well-cooked, soaked and cooked brown rice, chicken stock and um, carrot broth for the next three days and here are some herbal tonics to get your immune system back in gear. And I haven't had any kind of issues with tonsillitis since removing gluten from my diet, not one. Amazing. Incredible. (laughs) Amazing. And and no, I don't have celiac (laughs) disease. No, I even had the whole, you know, the the bum prod to to get (laughs) that one out. It was just such a joyful procedure to get ready for. And also don't have the genes. So, um, you know, like how do you answer that? And it has to be something that's changed about it. And I know desiccation methods aren't um, huge in Australia, certainly not for wheat. They're a bit, you know, the sort of starting to be talked about more for oats and rye. But at the same time, like, look at the amount of multinational food we eat. And our wheat's not necessarily coming from Australia. We export a lot of our wheat and import a lot in multinational processed foods. So it doesn't mean just because it's not a a huge practice here in Australia that we're not being affected by it based on what other people are doing. It's actually um, being done in wet areas. So in the Gippsland region... Uh, they're spraying canola oil that's not genetically modified with glyphosate as a desiccant. So I know they're doing that. And if you're eating a piece of bread that um, has been made with Australian wheat, but canola oil is the fat, which it will be. Mm, there it is. <laughs> there's the glyphosate. So it, just because Australia isn't spraying all the time, you know, they will, but only in areas um, where it's wet, and, and then the other thing is, is it all goes into one silo. And so the person that's not spraying versus the person that is spraying, it then goes into that silo and it's all contaminated. So it's not like, oh, I want my wheat from that farm over there, please. <laughs> yeah. I'd like my bread made from that farm over there. You know, so this it's, is just. It's really hard it to do. Happen. So it's something that a lot of people, I guess, want to know then is modern but organic wheat okay? if you don't have reactions to it or any other issues? I stay away from modern wheat. Um, I would rather see us go back to the more traditional wheats. And do I have proof as to why I'm saying that? 
the only reason I say that is, uh, number one, um, it, it, the um, hybridization. It is uh, a triticum estivum. It is not spelt kamut, emma or einkorn. So, you know, whether that's a good or a bad thing, you know, William Davies in his book, uh, Wheat Belly, talks about that and he believes it is. So I haven't done the research. I'm going with him and it's a feeling I have because I ate organic wheat. That's all I ate. I made everything from scratch. I made it with organic wheat. So I I go back to the old traditional wheats and so I go to Emma Wheat, Einkorn Changing Habits has, uh, we purchase Emma Wheat from an organic farmer in Dalesford. Uh, We take his grain every three months, we grind it um, and we sell it um, out of our Changing Habits store. So and but using it the old-fashioned way, fermenting it, making sure that you um, use it the way or eat it the way we used to eat it, which was that long sourdough fermentation process. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm a little, you know, bit funny about modern wheat. I have gone completely away from it. Um, but of course, I will be contaminated at, at times with it. But what's interesting is that I've been off wheat for five or six years now. And when I first would be contaminated with wheat, I knew it immediately. I would get a sore back. Then it turned to a sore little finger. And now I have no effects of it. I don't know if it, if anything's been contaminated with modern wheat because I don't have the effects of it anymore. But I'm not going back to it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to feel like I felt six years ago. I love feeling like I feel today, like I could just jump out of my skin. So um, oh, that's awesome. I, I would suggest the spelt's available, Kamut's available, Emma Wheat's available, and so is Einkorn. It, and it's becoming more and more available around the world. More and more people are growing it. So go for the old-fashioned wheats. Love it. And we'll pop some links uh, in the show notes so that um, people can find your store, find the Emma Wheat and and give it a go. Have a bit of a sourdough project with the kids and um, and see how you all go with it. Obviously not if you're celiac, though. <laughs> Let me just put that caveat in. It's not, you know, it's, celiac disease is a completely different thing. Um, now, Let's finish on a positive. Um, Well, I mean, there's been a lot of positives, mind you, but I think I always think of that person who's on their first day of exploration of whole foods, new foods, even just starting to look at the back of the packet of some of the processed foods they're buying for the very first time and hearing something like the chat we've just had can be extremely overwhelming, Um, thinking, oh, my gosh, my whole world is just about to have to turn upside down. And I remember feeling like that a little bit myself, um, but for some reason I always felt quite uh, empowered from the beginning and I put that down to surrounding myself with amazing sources of, um, of people and, um, and books to learn from. For someone who's on their very first day of, of starting to get curious about um, nourishing their bodies better, taking the confusion out of food, feeling more empowered around food choices, and hopefully some of that myth-busting we did in the first part of today's chat has definitely helped people feel more powerful there. Um, what advice do you give to people to stay really positive about food? Oh, to stay positive about it. I, I believe education is the number one thing to do is educate yourself about what's been done to food, 
how it affects your body and uh, what's the alternative. I always find an alternative. If I pull something away, I go, well, what's the alternative? Here it is. So if I take margarine away, here's butter. If I take refined salt away, here's real salt. If I take white sugar away, here's rapidura sugar. You know, if I take wheat flour away, let's go, you know, the modern wheat, let's go there. So it's about, I believe, in becoming educated. And that's why I wrote my book back in 1998, Changing Habits, Changing Lives. It's an education about the food industry and its trickery in making you believe a food is a food when it's just a bunch of additives, reserves and flavorings, <laughs> you know, it's not the real thing. Then once you've done that education, then I think the next step is to start going to your farmer's markets and start talking to the farmers. Don't talk to the people that have gone down to Brisbane Market, pulled a whole bunch of food for Brisbane Market and have no idea of its production. Start finding those farmers' markets, and they are pro- they're popping up everywhere, where you can actually speak to the producer and the farmer. And um, start there or even go to co-ops. So my farm's up in Mullaney. We have a co-op up there. They know exactly where their food is coming from, who's producing it, what sprays are put on it, uh, you can talk, learn about the farmer. So these things are starting to happen. Eat food or make foods from scratch. Get back into the kitchen, realising the power of the person in the kitchen, whether male or female, when they make food from foods that we know their production and their single ingredients uh, such as you buy the salt, you buy the rapidura sugar, you buy the emma wheat, the fruits, the vegetables, you know your meats, you know your chickens, you know your eggs and where your dairy is coming from. And you start to spend time in that kitchen. You don't have to spend a lot of time, but spend time in that kitchen. Then you not only nurture your family and yourself, but you heal a nation. A nation. And if we collectively do this in every home across Australia, you watch The obesity rate will go down, the diabetes rate will go down, the heart disease rate will go down, autoimmunity, um, mental illness, and we'll start to heal a nation. But it has to be on a grassroots movement. It has to be you that makes that decision for your family to make those changes. It's not hard. We've got people like you, Alex, that help people clean their whole house out of of every chemical that could be causing a problem or every, you know, anything that's in the home. there We've got resources. It's a matter of finding those resources in your local area and they're there. Uh, you know, my education, Functional Nutrition Academy, are teaching people to become resources in their community where they can say, hey, go to this farmer's market, go to this farmer, this is where you can buy this, this is where you can get this. I can come and help you clean out your pantry, clean out your fridge, clean out your kitchen. You know, like we've got Nicole Bisma out there teaching um, healthy homes. You know, yeah. Healthy homes. So yeah. it's it's Australia is pumping with this stuff. <laughs> I I look around and I go, if you haven't found somebody, then you're not looking. So education. Get back, go to the farmer's markets, find out how your food's produced and then get back into the kitchen and clean your house out. And 
I think we'll see a huge change in the, the health of the nation. I agree. And in, in getting back into the kitchen, see it as a positive. Like it's such a privilege to actually have oh. food in the first place, eh? Um, you know, there are so many people who don't even have that luxury. And for us to think of it as this inconvenient thing that is beneath us, as marketing has wanted us to think for decades, um, there's something incredible about getting back in touch with with food um, and and with the people around your dinner table, you know, lighting some candles, making it special rather than a chore, and it's just it's not rocket science, and it's actually really beautiful when you when you jump in there and see it as a beautiful thing, as opposed to this inconvenient thing you have to make time for. Yeah, really, and and the only way we survived as a species, as hunter gatherers, as agriculturalists is that there was no packaged foods. This was our way we did things and we didn't have the diseases we have today. And I agree with you. It is an absolute privilege to feed my family, to be in the kitchen. It's it's like it's to me, I would, I'd spend my day in the kitchen because I love creating amazing foods. I'm a fast food girl. I'm not. I'm not a gourmet girl. Don't expect to come to my house and have gourmet. You will have basically salad, uh, vegetable, um, some sort of meat, whether it be fish, chicken, e- or a protein, eggs, or red meat. Uh, it's it's a no-frills g- <laughs> type of place. <laughs> oh, we are too, 80, 80, 90% of the time as well. Like, you know, you make something fancy yeah. every now and then. But day to day, it's not hard. It's actually no. just, you know, ditching those marketing messages. I think half of it is that idea that food is hard, takes time and an inconvenience that we want to lift off your plate so buy our product instead. That's pretty much, if you've heard that your whole life and you're now 40 years old, then of course you'd believe it. But, um, you know, what a beautiful thing from today you might think again. Mm. Love it. Thank you so much, Cindy. It's been awesome having you on the show. I've already thought of at least five, like, you know, sub chats that I now want to go into and dive into (laughs) some of those topics more deeply. So it won't be the last. Um, But yeah, just so generous with everything that you've learned in your incredible career so far. And and to spend that time with us today is just a real joy. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Alex. Oh, you're so welcome. Well, that's another show done. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Always so much inspiration from our beautiful guests or me when I feel like having a solo show. And I just want to take a minute to say thank you for taking the time to leave a review for our show because it helps us stay visible and helps other people who maybe haven't discovered it yet go, ooh, that looks like it might be worth a look. So if the show has provided value to you, there's nothing you can do to thank me more than to leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you access the show from. So what you do is you just search generally in the podcast app. Don't be in the list of shows because you won't be able to leave a review there. So once you've searched generally, you'll see the tile come up and you click on that tile and then a little set of tabs will come up and the middle one is called review. And from there, you can click it, star rate it and leave a review. And I appreciate that so much. Now, if you want to connect with the rest of the Lotox Life community, we're over on Instagram at Lotox Life 
or on the main website uh, where there are a whole bunch of recipes, some incredible e-learning opportunities depending on what your low-tox goals are. And that is www.lowtoxlife.com. And of course, if you want to check out the podcast show notes, you just do forward slash podcast and everything's there. So I look forward to continuing our chats in between shows online in the community.